You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. If you have a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're going to continue our series in coffee mug verses. Those familiar, sometimes over-familiar verses, uh, portions of Scripture that maybe have become so familiarized, we kind of rip them out of context. We're not uh, really using them very wisely. Maybe you've had them on T-shirts or mugs, or they're probably sitting in your kitchen right now. Um, good will and intention people give you these gifts, but sometimes we, we use them for weird things to say things they don't really mean. And so we've been walking through these very uh, familiar passages to kind of get a handle on, not to be self-righteous about it, but to really say, what can we learn from these passages? How can we kind of uh, re-engage the beauty and the weight of the promises in which, which are there by looking at the context uh, which, in which these coffee cup verses often come? Uh, and so if you have a Bible, turn me to James chapter 1. We're going to look at just the first four verses. Uh, This might be another familiar uh, section of scripture for you, but James kind of tucked in the back of your Bible right after Hebrews, small little letter. Um, We're going to just look at James chapter one, start the first four verses there. If you have a Bible, uh, it'll be on the screen, or if you have one, you need a Bible, there's one around you in the chair, uh, should be at least. So James chapter one, here's what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let's let's just pray and ask for God's help as we open his word. Father, we do need your help. We need your spirit to illuminate and open our eyes to see to see what you're saying, to hear what you're saying. God, where we need comfort this morning, would you comfort us by your spirit? Where we need conviction, would you bring conviction? Um, Where we need encouragement, where we need hope, God, would your spirit do all those things, things I cannot do for my friends. So help us as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So coffee, mug, Verses, they're, they're so familiar, we take them out of context often, we, we diminish their beauty and their, their weight. And so hopefully after the last few weeks, we've looked at these very familiar verses that you're beginning to see as we look at the context, they're really great verses, they're really important verses, and we can use them wisely to minister to each other when we understand it in its, in its full context. And so we've looked at verses like from Romans 8, 28, you know, God's working together all things for the good of those who love them. And, and that's a beautiful promise of God, but if you look at the cosmic scope of what God's up to, that he's working in the midst of this broken, sinful world, that the whole world, the whole cosmos is aching for its redemption. And then God says, but right in the midst of that, I'm working out all things for the good of those who love me. Right in the midst of your own ache and the ache of the world, I'm working out all things. And then last week, Matt looked at Philippians chapter 4, 13, um, 
The I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, the Tim Tebow verse, right? That, that How many athletes have plastered that on their shirts or tattooed it on their arms? I can bench press 400 pounds. I can run the 40-yard dash in four seconds flat. I can, you know, whatever it is uh, through Christ who strengthens me. But when we look at the context, it's about contentment. It's, it's about I have strength whether life is going really well and things are, and things are abundant or things are falling apart. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul teaches us. He knew what it was like to have life falling apart. He knew what it was like for life to be going really, really well. So in his context, it makes total sense. Of course I can do all things, whether I have a lot or nothing because I know God is, is with me. And then this morning, maybe this is a familiar one, maybe not. You, we, I, was, I had a good challenge of picking ones that I thought were familiar, but how do we find joy in the midst of various trials, challenges, troubles, sufferings, right? How many times have you heard this, this verse, count it all joys, my brothers or sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, right? When you're going through it, when you're challenged, when there's trouble, hey, you got to find joy in the midst of it, right? But what does James mean here? How do we find joy in the midst of of trial and trouble when things aren't going well. Is that even possible? And so that's what we want to look at uh, for a few moments here this morning. And so where I want to start with, with our text here is, is first talk about the reality of trials, the reality of trials. Because did you notice in our text this morning in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of very various kinds. Not if, when. Like the reality of trials, like they're coming, right? If, and I always say this, I know we have a lot of young young whippersnappers in our, our church. If you're young and you haven't gone through anything, it's just you haven't lived long enough, that's all. It's just a math equation. Like we all go through trials, we all go through challenges, we all suffer in various ways in different forms. So James is giving us a, a realistic picture of when they come, not if, when, we can find joy in the midst of it. Now, I know that's really hard for us to understand because we live in this, this time, what, what I would call the secular age. And so what that means is everything we believe about life is to happen right now, right here and right now. That's all secular means. Like we use it as a cursor, but it's just a worldview that basically just says everything is now. There is no grander narrative. There is no grander story. So all of our happiness, all of our joy is based on what we're accumulating now, what we're doing now, what we're making now, what we're building now, with no context of God or a bigger, larger narrative, everything's now. Now is all we have. This life is all we have. There's nothing beyond it. There's nothing in the future. We see most cultures have lived with the sense of a grander story that gave meaning to relationships, gave meaning to loss, gave meaning to suffering, whether that was Christian or non-Christian or other religious systems or philosophical systems. Everything wasn't just about now. And so when we hear things about trials uh, happening in our lives, we say, no, 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 not for me. <laughs> I don't need that, right? I'm going to avoid that at all costs. And we work really hard to avoid any kind of pain, any kind of struggle, any kind of discomfort, especially living in America, amen? Right? It's like that's just the God of comfort. Anything that, that causes me pain or struggle, I want to ignore it. I want to push it away and say, no, thank you. And yet in our Context in James 2,000 years ago is James is addressing a group of Christians who were Jewish folks, and now they've become Christians, who are scattered all over the Roman Empire. They're away from their families. They're away, away from what's comfortable. They're away from uh, what they know. And here comes James saying, 
hey, when you face many trials, when you're scattered, when you're not near your family, when you have to move across the country, when you're a Christian and nobody around you is a Christian, hey, when you, when you find yourself in that place, know that you can even find joy in the midst of those trials. Because even Jewish people in James' day that were coming to faith, they had this idea of a, a creator God who ruled the universe, who was in the middle of, of human history. But the one thing the Jewish people had a hard time was, is when Jesus came along, the idea of God becoming man was very difficult for them. And so here is this God-man who comes, this, th- these people have become Christians, they're following this Messiah, this one who lived and died and rose again, resurrected from the dead, this guy who moved into the neighborhood and says, I'm God, and the embodiment of truth, the way, the truth, and the life, he comes, and now the Jewish people are kind of going like, I don't know if God can do that. And I think it's also important to think about who's writing this book, James. James a Jewish man who became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who happens to be the brother, the younger brother of Jesus. Now, James was a significant person in the early church. He was one of the four pillars of the Christian movement, James and, and, and Paul and, James, or, uh, and John. Sorry, Paul, Peter, John, and James were like the four pillars of the early church. They're significant leaders in the church, but there was a time in James' life where he didn't believe in this Christ. He was the younger brother of Jesus. Can you imagine? They shared a bedroom and a bathroom together. And I don't know if you have lived in a family with multiple people. It doesn't always go well, right? So here's James living with Jesus, the son of of Mary and Joseph. He's writing this letter. He's sharing a bedroom and a bathroom with Jesus. He's seeing all of Jesus' personality, his quirks, his problems. Now, he was without sin. We know that. But he saw him up close, and here's what he came to to the conclusion. Notice what he said in the first part of his letter. James, a servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That James, the apostle, the brother of Jesus, came to the conclusion that this was the Lord, the creator God, the redeemer God, the, the master of masters, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But he didn't always believe that. Now, I'm not just making that up. Actually, John chapter 7 is really clear on this. John chapter 7, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews, uh, now the Jews feast, uh, where am I? Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing giving evidence that he is God and is who he says he is. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Did you hear it? That includes James. Not even his brothers believed him. Now, if your brother was walking around the house going like, hey guys, I'm God. I mean, you probably punch him in the face, Right? Right? If, if my kids and, and my oldest son's walking around going, hey, guys, I just want you to know, you need to bow down to me. I'm God. They'd be like, please. Right? Sometimes our family are the hardest people to, to give respect to. Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> right? So here's James writing this letter who didn't believe in the Lord Jesus was his own brother, and it took a while for him to come to these conclusions. And at one point, James did encounter his grace, and everything changed. Because in 1 Corinthians, 
This all has a point, just hang with me, this is all context. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appears after his resurrection to different groups of people, hundreds of people, individuals. But notice what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. I don't know what happened in that encounter. We don't know. We don't know from the context. But Jesus showed up specifically to James, his brother, by himself. And I think that changed James forever. He encountered Jesus in a new and fresh way after he had resurrected from the dead. And so as he's writing this letter, after he's encountered grace, James has seen not just Jesus as his half-brother or younger or older brother, but now he sees him as the one, the good shepherd, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, the one who comes and rescues his people, the one who walks alongside those who are going through trials and challenges. And now he can say with all confidence, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because I know the good shepherd who moves in when life is falling apart. He is Lord. He is God. God is near even in trials. And so the reality of trials is not if trials come, but when they come. How can we find joy in the midst of them? And James was able to say confidently, you can You most certainly can because I've experienced them. The people of this time are experiencing loss and pain and trial. So secondly, what's a new approach towards these trials? How can we look at these trials in new and fresh ways? If all that's true, if if we understand that the trials are part of our existence, part of our lives, troubles, suffering, challenges, we can't avoid them. Well, what's this new approach towards trials then based from our text? If you go back to James... Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember, this is a group of Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and and there's this low hum, this low grade of persecution. They're they're not in the in crowd, right? They're new converts. They're new Christians. They're they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in a place that's very hostile to them. And as you read through the book of James and get some more context, which we won't do here this morning, but you can see there's there's also some kind of... uh, poverty going on. There's some kind of factions going on inside the church. So they're experiencing a lot of division, a lot of challenges, a lot of trials. And James is writing to them like a good pastor. And James, the letter of James is a very interesting book. Some would say it's almost like Proverbs because it it's kind of strings together with these kind of pastoral exhortations and they don't always fit together. That's why I'm only looking at one little section. Because then he jumps from, you know, wisdom, and then he jumps about to favoritism and hearing and doing the word, all these kinds of things. But like a good pastor, he's trying to encourage them to say, I know there's loss, I know there's trial, I know there's challenges, but you can find joy in the midst of them. You can have a new attitude toward them. Because someone argued the theme of James, the big theme of James, is to argue what does a genuine faith look like? A faith that is lived, that is embodied, right? He says, hey, what good is faith without works? It's not, it's not a conversation about do we work our way to God, right? Is there some way that by our good deeds, our good works, 
that God is more happy, more pleased, that, that we become children of God by what we do. That's not what James is saying. But he's saying, if you are a genuine believer in Christ, the fruit of your faith should equate to good works and good deeds. It's an active, living, embodied faith. You can't just say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't change you. It doesn't change when somebody's in need that we don't move toward them and help them. He talks about that, right? If there's orphans and people in need, what, we just ignore them? What kind of faith is that? It's not about working to God, but it's the, the embodiment, the fruit of a genuine, authentic faith. And so he's more concerned with, is that faith in your life active and living? Can you find joy even when trials come, even when challenges come? Because that would mean that this is a genuine, real faith. Now, James here isn't calling us to um, masochism. You know what a masochist is? Someone who just enjoys pain, right? No pain, no gain, right? Lord's Gym t-shirt, right? You know that guy, right? Just no pain, no gain, right? So it's like we embodied the pain. Like, I want trials. I want challenges. Like, I want to suffer. Do you guys remember a long time ago that Tom Hanks uh, movie, The Da Vinci Code? You remember this? Um, it's all true and real if you go look it up in history, but um, no, it's actually not. But there's that opening scene where the, the, the monk is just there and he's just beating himself senselessly, right? Somehow that by beating ourselves, uh, hurting ourselves, we're closer to God, right? No pain, no gain, right? The more we suffer, the closer we are to God. That's not what James is saying. He's not saying rejoice in the trial itself and the pain that it causes and the sadness that it causes, but he's also not calling us to hedonism, this idea that like we want to avoid all pain, all trials, that, that we don't want that in our lives because that's not what he's saying in the text. He's saying actually there's some good that comes out of the trials. It's actually, we'll get to in just a moment, it's an evidence of God's grace actually that he's at work in your midst. But if we can learn how to handle and think about these trials, we can actually find joy. And that's where the new... What did I call it? A new approach toward trials. I should know that. Um, I wrote the sermon. So um, it, it's a new approach towards the trials. Well, what do I do? How do I do that? How do I find joy? Is there an actual practical way to do it? And James is actually telling, yes, it is. Notice in verse two, count it. You get it? Count it all joy, my brothers. Some translations say consider it. In other words, reflect on, think about what is going on in your life. Count it. What's the it? The it is the trial, the tribu tribulation, the challenge, the things that aren't going well. When those things come into our lives, I want you to consider it. I want you to count it. I want you to look at it. I want you to reflect on it. Why? Because God is in the midst of it doing something even greater and bigger than the trial itself. It's not wasted. It's not meaningless. It's to pause and go, what is going on in this? Now, joy is a great word. It's a Greek word. It means anything that causes cheer, dispels gloom, gladness, happiness, jubilation. But joy is also an interesting word here because joy has the root word of grace. Count it all grace. Now, if you back up, I love when the Bible does things like this because it's really interesting. If you go back to James, his opening greeting, 
It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, I'm in the ESV. It says greetings. Anyone else have a non-ESV that says something else? Nobody? Okay. I know we don't have our Bibles open, Pastor, so I don't really know what you're talking about. Um, but no. Um, but the ESV says greetings. Sorry, ESV. Not a good translation. You could almost translate this word grace. It has, greetings has the same root word as grace. So James, essentially what he's saying is not just a generic, hey, greetings, guys, how's it going? Hope things are well. Grace to you, just like Paul does, grace and peace. So we have grace in the greeting, and then we have grace and the root of joy. And what he's saying is what happens in trial, what happens in challenge, what happens uh, in our lives is that God's grace is actually manifested to you. It's where he moves in close to do something even greater through the challenge and through the trial. So we could say that this is an evidence of God's grace in our lives. Not the absence that God is doing a million things that you and I can't see at the moment, and it's all of God's grace. Because what he's doing is that he's deepening and shaping, solidifying our faith so that it would produce the steadfastness and endurance that God desires, to create more grace in our lives, to see and experience and feel his grace in our lives. And trials, it's also, you can look at trials as also test examination, even temptation. So consider it joy when a test comes or an examination of your faith. Now, examinations are good, right? Sometimes, right? If you go to the doctor and, you know, men are terrible at this. Usually it's like every, you know, 19 years we'll get in a physical. It's usually when our eyes are bleeding out and something really bad's happening. I probably should go have that checked out. Um, I haven't been able to see anything for four days, but um, that's just me. Maybe you guys are more on it like every year, but right? Um, but it's to see where I'm at, what's wrong with me, right? It's not a pass or fail. It's just to see when you take a test at school, right? <clears throat> Your identity should be wrapped up, but it's like, do you understand the subject, right? If you're an engineer in engineering school and, and you need to take these tests, right, to get certified, it's to see, do you understand how to build a bridge? It's kind of important if you're an engineer who builds bridges. It's like, well, I failed, but you know, I know in my heart I can do it, right? <laughs> examinations and tests aren't bad. If you're, um, you know, in the exercise world, right, and you're working out in the gym, you're, you're seeing how fast can I go, how long can I run, how much weight can I lift, you're, you're testing, examining, where am I at with things? And so it's very uh, obvious. Um, I know you guys are already going to laugh because every time I say it, um, it's obviously I spend a lot of time in the gym. Okay, thank you. Um, but what I do know, the little I know about the gym and lifting weights is that when you lift weights, it actually tears your muscles. Do you know that? So when you're lifting weights, like if you want to get stronger, it's like you just got to go tear your muscles. The gift is the day after and the day after that. When your muscles tear, guess what? They rebuild stronger. So in the pain, it's not fun, right? I don't love the gym. I don't like throwing heavy things around. Why would it be so heavy? I mean, it's like, sheesh be a little lighter. But I know day two, day three, things are happening. Right, Noah? Um, Noah's been playing football, getting, getting big, getting swole, um, but doing steroids. No, we're not. Did I say that publicly? No, we just need an edge, just a little edge. Nothing, I mean, nothing weird. Just, um, but it's in the tearing that's painful, but it's what comes out of it. 
if you have a piece of coal and you heat it up, it becomes a diamond. It's in the pressure, it's in the fire, it's in the storm that that thing becomes beautiful. It's in the trial and the other side of the trial that something beautiful comes out of it. It doesn't feel beautiful at the time. It doesn't feel life-giving at the time, right? When you come home and you've just, you know, worked out or life has fallen apart, or I mean, working out's a very, you know, minimal illustration, but you don't always feel that great. Sometimes you feel sore, right? But you know something good is coming. And so James makes it very clear these trials are coming. It's not an if, it's when. And he also mentions there are very... Various trials, so they're, they're multifaceted, they're, they're multicolored, they're going to look different for all of us. For, for, the, for the Christians at this time, it could be low-grade persecution. Just for being a Christian, you're going to have some difficulties. That's just how it is, right? And, and I, I mean, I know in our day, I mean, everybody's getting, you know, persecuted, right, um, for saying dumb things on the internet and just going like, why does everyone hate me because I'm a Christian? It's because you're just a jerk. That's actually what that is. That's not being a Christian, but that's fine. Um, but like, what is persecution and trial just for being a Christian, for having convictions, for believing in certain things, act, living certain ways, right? You're going to have persecution for that. It could be job loss, right? It could be a trial of, of a lost relationship, someone who passes away, a sickness, a disability, right? Unemployment. All these different trials come into our lives. They're various. They're multifaceted. They're not just one thing. But notice how, you remember I mentioned there's these four pillars in the church, James, John, Peter, Paul. Notice how Peter says this, almost verbatim. If you go to 1 Peter, go back a couple books. Um, oh, excuse me. Forward, sorry, one book. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Almost verbatim. Same word here for James and Peter. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in the fire that our faith is authenticated. It's in the fire that our faith becomes more robust and more enduring and can last even when things get really, really difficult. Now, what James is talking about here is not necessarily is there faith or not faith. It's really what kind of faith is it? He's addressing Christians. And, and again, all of our faiths are in different places. I mean, sometimes it feels like we're just barely hanging on. Sometimes it feels like it's robust. But, but he's saying through these trials, wherever you are, when these things come, God is at work in the midst of making it stronger, making it more stable, making it more beautiful, that it requires fire and testing for it to come out the other end beautiful and strong and robust. So we can have a new attitude toward trials by considering, by counting, what is this trial? Why is it going on? And what is coming out on the other side? Even if we were able just to pause for a moment to go, like, I know this is difficult and I know uh, this is painful, but I know what's coming out on the other side is worth the cost, is worth the pain. Because that leads to our last point is because there's a new power because of these, these trials. A new power. You probably caught that in three and four. 
There's this new power that emerges as we go through it. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance, right? Now he's very, James is very specific here. It's a testing of your faith. It's not a testing of like how strong are you or how smart are you or how wise are you. It's a testing of your faith. When you go through it, who am I trusting in? Who am I looking to, right? I don't know about you, but maybe it's just the American way or it's just a male thing or whatever, but I'm a quick problem solver when something goes wrong in my life. In other words, can we pay to have that fixed, (laughs) right? Who can I have help me with this thing, right? It's like you get on the whiteboard almost and you're like, okay, trial comes, challenge comes. Okay, how do we solve this? How do we fix this line here, line, right? Instead of going on my face and going, God, I can't fix this. I need your help. I need to trust you in the midst of it. I don't see a way out of this. And some of us have been in those situations and had these problems. This is well beyond us where what kind of faith do I have in those moments? Do I look to God or do I look to somewhere else? In the testing of our faith is the question of who am I relying on? So James is saying, hey, church, when you're scattered around the Roman Empire and things aren't going well and you want to give up, where do you look to? Who do you look to to get through another day? Where do you find your joy ultimately? And that's not easy for any of us, right? right? I, I'd like for all of us in this room to say, like, well, yeah, Jesus, of course. Yes, brother, right? Like how many have heard this verse, right? Count it all joy. You're like, no, I'm not, not a lot of joy right now, right? That's okay, Right? But, but it's looking at the bigger picture saying, yeah, there, there's not a lot of joy in this moment. I mean, cancer has come. I lost my husband, lost my kid, you know, I'm, lost my job. Don't have a lot of joy right now. But I know through it, God is tearing off the rough edges of my faith. He's taking all of the gross parts and all the dark parts and all the parts that cause resistance in me to trust him. And he's, he's fashioning it and shaping it like a beautiful diamond, taking off all the imperfections. That's what he's doing in the midst of those trials and those challenges. So that a more beautiful faith can emerge. One that's more robust, one that's more has more endurance. And see, everybody's a great Christian when everything's going well, right? Like, yeah, brother. Life's great, right? When you've you know, got a million dollars in the bank and the kids are healthy and everything's going well, you've got lots of joy, right? But the question is, what kind of faith do we have when the bottom falls out, right? When the, the, the car's leaking oil and the transmission's out on the highway and you don't know where to turn, what kind of a faith emerges there? What kind of joy emerges there? Are we trusting in God and his provision? Or are we looking somewhere else? I remember my grandmother, she was a great saint. Uh, she passed away many years ago, my grandfather and I remember talking to my grandmother, and she always had this joy, and I always thought in my little brain, and even though I got a little bit older, that I just feel like grandma hasn't really gone through a lot of stuff, and that's probably why she's happy. (laughs) But live long enough, you go through a lot of stuff. She died at a great old age of 87. But she starts sharing these stories when her sister committed suicide, and she had to walk in the room and find her guts on the ceiling. Sorry, I have to see there's kids in here. Um, Right? A son that doesn't talk to her anymore, right? A friend who abandoned her 
cancer, right? So I'm going through, she isn't, you know, she's not just sitting there like sharing these stories. I'm going, what, grandma? Like, are you kidding me? Like all these things happen to you? Yeah. Almost every godly person you've ever met has a story and it's usually a story of loss and pain and trial. And yet you see this joy and this spark. I've traveled, um, not everywhere around the world, but I've been to some really poor places of the world. And I'm always amazed by the joy that these people have that have nothing. Because there's something about going through the fire that creates joy in us. That's why, especially in places like America and where we have a lot of wealth, we're some of the most miserable people on the planet. They've done a study that once you make $70,000 a year, your joy doesn't go any higher by the more money you make. Right? This is like a Harvard study. Um, I believe that, right? It's like there comes a point, it's just like it doesn't matter. Like that's not the thing. That's not the juice. That's not the thing that's going to get me uh, through the day. And so what James is saying here, there's this steadfastness that, that comes. It produces a steadfastness and endurance. And I love this Greek word because it's a, a, a hyper stance to endure. It's this Greek word of hyper. It's like this, this robust, firmly planted thing that through the trial, through the challenge, God is working in and through me that, that when another thing comes, I'm able to stand. I'm able to endure. I'm able to even find joy in the midst of it. And I think it's only through challenges and trials and troubles that we learn, I think, other, what I would say, powers like humility and contentment, as we talked about last week, and compassion. I don't know how else you develop these things. I don't think you can just tell someone to be compassionate or have humility or be content until they've actually gone through something. I just don't think it works. Right? Facts aren't enough. Like, hey, brother, you should be content. It's like, okay. But when you've actually experienced having nothing or if you experienced having uh, everything or, 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 right, or, or you've been hurt or, or you've been attacked or, or someone bailed on you or somebody died, right? Until those things happen, I don't think you can build humility and contentment and compassion. And I think we have evidence from Scripture that's really clear. Actually, the Apostle Paul, I mentioned him a couple times the last few weeks when we looked at Romans 8 as well, but in, in 1 Corinthians uh, Beautiful text, actually, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. Notice what he, he says about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, what a humble statement. This always kind of messes with me, and I don't always love it. But um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse uh, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming, what's the word? Conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Did you hear what the Apostle Paul said? One of the greatest apostles, church planters, pastors, missionaries the world's ever seen. He went through trial and pain and loss in prison. He was snake bitten. He almost died like multiple times. He was stoned with stone, the other kind of stone with rocks near his, his death, right? He went through all of these things. He knew what it was like to have, uh, you got it. There's a lot of CBD around here in the city, but, um, but you, you, got, you got the understanding that this guy was, I was given a thorn in my flesh. It could, be, it could have been a disability. We don't really know. It could have been someone who just followed him around and mocked him relentlessly to, dis, to destroy him and confuse him and for him to give up. And he says, 
I asked for it to go away and it didn't go away, but God was doing it so I would be humble. What if there's something in your life that is not going away? A trial, a challenge, a disability, but the reason God keeps it there is so that you would stay humble. Now, I know that sounds like, oh geez, that sounds awful, but from scripture we have evidence and people that have experienced this to say, that was a gift to me. How else would I have learned humility? There's no other way, right? You can't just tell someone to be humble that hasn't gone through anything. It just doesn't work, right? It's learning to know that we're weak. It's learning to to know we have limits. And it's in those limits we discover humility. We learn contentment through trials and suffering. When, When somebody takes something away and we don't have it anymore, can we learn how to be content without the thing, whatever the thing is, Right? Some of us have lost family members. Some of us have lost loved ones, right? We've lost dream jobs, whatever it is. But when we lose those things, do we learn contentment by saying, I'm okay, I don't need the dream job. As much as I love my family, like I still have to learn how to be content without them. That doesn't mean the pain isn't there, the loss isn't there. But how much do we put so much identity and stock in those things where they become gods to us? Don't take that away. You can have anything you want. Just don't take my hobbies away. Right? Don't take my spouse away. Don't take my kids away. Don't take my health away. Right? Like those would be the worst things to lose. So we learn contentment through that. We, we learn compassion when we experience trials and loss and suffering. As you, you begin to understand people in a new and fresh way. I think so much of, of wanting to, for our, our, our world to be more aware of, of issues, social issues, just by telling people, giving people the facts, facts can be helpful but it's actually when people experience these things, experience somebody's story, hear their story, that it changes you. You can never be the same. My wife and I, as you know, many of you know, we lost a child a few years ago. And when people are struggling to get pregnant or lose a child, there's just a deeper understanding and compassion for those folks to realize it can happen to anybody. We're not owed this. Whatever you've walked in, the beauty that God will use in your life, and some of you already are, is the things that you have lost now become a testimony of God's grace to someone else, showing how you've made it, how you've endured. And it's not made it like, you know, I just kind of gritted my teeth and, well, people die and just move on. No, it's not like that at all. It's through tears and pain and fear and doubt, right? But those things come through these trials, these gifts of humility and contentment and compassion, and James says, this faith is going to be, in verse 4, its full effect. I let steadfastness, this endurance, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This has this idea, again, not perfect in this life. We're not going to ever have a perfect faith, but you can have a mature, whole faith. That's what he's saying. You, you can have one that's, that's been through the ringer, right? That, that the rough edges have been kind of sawed off a little bit, right? The, the dross has come off through the pain, through the struggle, right? It's gotten a little more beautiful, a little more robust, right? And again, it will never be perfect on this side of heaven, but but God is at work in those things, moving us a little bit closer, conforming us a little bit more into the image of Jesus because that's what Romans 8, 29 says, that your salvation, you've been predestined, you've been justified, you're gonna be glorified, why? To be conformed to the image of, of the Son. That you don't become a Christian just to get a ticket into heaven, as great as that is. 
You get a, 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 a relationship with God so that you can be conformed to the image of Jesus. Why? So you can endure trials, so that you can love like Jesus. You can be compassionate like Jesus. You can be humble like Jesus. That's what he's after in your life. Not just a ticket to heaven. He wants you to be more like his son, to love like his son, to be humble like his son, to endure trials like his son. And that's where I think we learn the, the beauty of all of this is when we look to Jesus, this complete mature faith, we see it on display in Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 12, this is really fascinating says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure a torture device like the cross? How did he have joy in the midst of it? He saw what was coming out the other side. He counted, he considered that this is painful. I'm going to lose my life for the sins of the world, for the evil of the world, to restore. But what is coming on the other side of it is worth it. That when he was on the cross, he, he, he saw what he was doing to glorify the Father, to, to, to do the, complete the mission that God had called him to, to redeem and restore the world, what was broken by his life and his death and his resurrection. But he was also thinking about his people, that this is painful and this is terrible, but what's happening is I get to invite a bunch of people into my family and I get to forgive them and love them and call them my sons and daughters. That's worth it. How do you find joy on the other side of suffering as you see the bigger picture of what's going on. Even Jesus himself had to endure it. Now, he was perfect and without sin. He didn't complain like we do. But he knew this relationship with the Father was everything. And to lose that even for a moment when God turned his back on Jesus just for a moment on the cross was way too much. But he knew, I left the perfections of heaven. I left the glory of heaven to come to earth, but I know I'm gonna get that back and that's worth it. That all the stuff that we experience in life and all the pain we experience in life, Romans 8, right? This cosmic 8, God is redeeming it all. So even in these little minuscule trials and challenges that feel so big in the moment, in the, in the scope of history, in the scope of eternity, they don't compare to the glories that will be revealed in us. That's what Romans 8 says. That's what Paul says, that even though I'm being beaten, even though I'm, I'm near death, even though there's trials and challenges everywhere, it doesn't compare to what is coming. Even Jesus knew that. And he knew it from the cross. And I stumble over this verse often, and maybe you can help me, but it says that even Jesus learned obedience. In Romans chapter 5, verse 7, he says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God of heaven and earth, had to learn to suffer well. He had to learn how to find joy in trials and challenges. Jesus did. You don't think we do? Now, he was, again, perfect in every way. 
But it was through those sufferings, through those trials, he could even find joy because he saw what was coming on the other side. So church, when we face trials, know that Jesus took on hell for you and Satan and sin because he loves you on the cross. Know that he stands with you even in your trial and in your your challenge because the cross proves it that even when we are rebellious, even though we turned our backs, he didn't let go of you. He didn't turn his back on you. And in your midst of your trial, whatever you're walking in right this moment, even if it's big or small, he's not turning away from you. He's with you right in the midst of it. Working out a mature, robust faith that's going to be that much more beautiful on the other side by his spirit and by his grace. So if you're facing trial and and troubles and challenges, stand with Jesus, count it pure joy. If you consider it, you count it, you look at it, know the trial isn't the last say, but what comes out of it is a gift to us. It's a manifestation of God's grace to us because God is making you into a more humble, compassionate, loving person, more like his son, Jesus, right through that thing, whatever that thing is, whatever that trial is. Amen.